The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, feast and famine in the art world. We're at Art Basel in Miami Beach to hear about the big sales, and we hear about cuts to art organisations in the UK, and particularly London. Plus, a show of Ukrainian modernism in Madrid. As Art Basel returns to Florida for the 20th anniversary of its Miami Beach Fair, Amy Dawson speaks to Annie Shaw about the talking points at the event that's become most synonymous with art world excess. Meanwhile, after Arts Council England announced its funding allocation in November, arts organisations across the country, and especially in London, are reeling. I talked to Jenny Lomax, the former director of the Camden Arts Centre, the North London non-profit whose funding has been cut by more than 30% about the effect of the cuts. And this episode's work of the week is Alexander Bohomazov's Sharpening the Saws from 1927, a work from the National Art Museum of Ukraine that's among a host of paintings moved from the war-torn country to Madrid for the exhibition In the Eye of the Storm, Modernism in Ukraine, 1900-1930s. to Katia Denisova, the co-curator of the show, tells me about the picture and the extraordinary journey it took to the Spanish capital. Before that, the latest series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, continues featuring in-depth conversations with artists about their influences and cultural experiences. The first two episodes of the series are conversations with Theaster Gates and Helen Martin. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear them and to explore the back catalogue of more than 50 conversations. Do also subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the Art Basel in Miami Beach Art Fair is 20 years old this year and its latest edition is the largest to date, featuring more than 280 exhibitors. But it's happening at a moment of global economic turbulence and as Art Basel itself is undergoing a change in leadership. The art newspaper's acting digital editor, Amy Dawson, is in Miami and she caught up with our acting art market editor, Annie Shaw, to discuss the talking points at this year's fair. So here we are at Art Basel Miami Beach. It's the last major fair of the year and it's the first kind of fully post-COVID Miami Beach fair. What do you think the vibe has been in these first two VIP days? Well, yes, it's Art Basel Miami Beach's 20th anniversary this year and there's certainly a sort of feeling that this might be the last hurrah uh, before some of the economic realities that have been plaguing other markets come home to roost. I think the first VIP day yesterday, there was, there was a fair amount of energy, but some dealers are remarking that it's not been that busy. We're here in the fair on the second day, and it feels a little bit quieter. And again, dealers are sort of saying there's something possibly in the post. There's perhaps a whiff of trouble to come. I mean, we've just come out of the New York auction season in November, and they sort of brought home... Mixed results, I think, would be fair to say. Of course, there were the single-owner collector sales, like the Paul Allen sale, which did astonishingly well, but they are something of an anomaly. I think there were sort of more mixed results in the other sales. And, of course, you know, there are financial instruments that prop up those auction results, such as guarantees. So it's sort of a very different market and quite difficult to tell what's actually going on there. 
But as I just mentioned, you know, one dealer's put it to me that we're going to have a bit of a reality check when the clock strikes midnight on December the 31st. So, you know, some of the cooling in the market that we're seeing might begin to percolate down. I'd also mention that it's Mark Spiegler's final fair as global director, and he's been very visible. He's been out and about this week. We've seen him at a number of events, though he's still not divulging what his next role might be, except to say that it's not particularly newsworthy. So, you know, it might suggest that he's not going too far from Art Basel. Maybe he's taking on an advisory role, but that's all to be confirmed. It's worth saying, you know, you mentioned it was a feeling of a last hurrah, and it certainly does feel like people are out and about. There have been lots of parties. Last night was a very bizarre party for Pace Gallery that was karaoke and everyone was very involved and like you say Mark Spiegler was there so although maybe people aren't partying with the money they're definitely getting on board with the party Miami spirit and seeing out the end of this year but let's talk more about the sales and things that have been reported obviously as we know economies everywhere are suffering there's rising inflation in Europe and in the US and a cost of living crisis soaring energy bills so how is that translating here on the fair floor I mean, dealers are reporting pretty strong sales. Of course, that's not uncommon. Certainly on the first day, you are bombarded with those early sales and they're often seven-figure sums. But that has to be taken with a pinch of salt because, as we know, a lot of art is pre-sold at these events. You know, dealers cover their costs before they've installed their booths. But among the early sales at Pace, for instance, there was an Agnes Martin from 1998, which went for $7 million, and a 1964 Andy Warhol flower painting, which went for $3.8 million. Um, Those are, of course, secondary market sales, i.e. they are older works or works that have been bought and sold previously. On the primary market, there was a Loey Hollowell painting for $450,000 and an Adrian Genny drawing for $225,000. So there's sort of a range of prices there. Over at Christophe van der Vey, he's a dealer who trades exclusively in secondary market material. He has a Basquiat that has never come to market um, on his booth which is priced around $20 million. Apparently, he's had an offer at around $17 million, but he's declined to accept that, um, though he expects to sell the painting for the end of the fair. So there's some very high-level sales being made. Today, we're getting some sales reports through, and there are fewer works hitting the $1 million mark, so it's interesting to see how there's been quite a marked decrease in value just in a day of the fair. And bearing in mind, this is still a VIP day, so you know it would indicate perhaps that the price levels are coming down a bit. And let's talk about the other major shifting environment in the US here, which is politics. It's been a bit of a tumultuous year and Florida has swung considerably to the right. How is this affecting the perception of Miami as kind of a cultural destination? And it's an interesting one because of course we've got the governor here, the Republican governor is Ron DeSantis. He's like a rising star in the Republican Party. He's a favourite of Fox News and he's also expected to make a a bid for president in 2024 and run against Donald Trump, who, of course, is another former Floridian politician. And Ron DeSantis is behind all sorts of regressive laws and policies, including the Don't Say Gay bill, which prevents the teaching of transgender issues 
from at primary school level. He's also behind a bill called the Stop Woke Act, which limits teaching on critical race theory, including the concept of white privilege. There's been a temporary injunction taken out on that latter bill. A judge in the state described it as positively dystopian. So at state level, we have these sort of very right-wing, quite disturbing policies being implemented. But I interviewed George Perez, who is the Argentinian-born Miami mega collector who made his millions in property development here and was a former friend of Donald Trump, though they no longer are. And he says actually what's happened, particularly since the pandemic, is that the state's low-tax, pro-business approach has actually enticed a lot of wealthy individuals and corporations to Miami. And with that, they're bringing you know, money to art. So there's been a trickle-down effect from other economies and industries. So in fact, what is happening is that there's been a sort of almost revival of the Miami scene with this huge investment in art. We've got galleries opening. There's a young dealer from New York who's opened a gallery in March called Jupiter. You know, galleries opening. We've got artists, new foundations being established and sort of a very strong collecting community. Not only local Miamians, but New Yorkers and others from other northeastern US cities who have sort of made Miami their home since the pandemic. Something that's quite interesting to note this year, there was a huge presence of crypto companies and NFTs last year at the fair. They really heavily leaned into that trend. And this year, you can hardly find an NFT, certainly not in Art Basel. What do you think has happened? Of course, there have been some crashes in the crypto economy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it's an extraordinary U-turn, really. I mean, last year, you couldn't move for NFTs. I think every hotel had some sort of NFT project. Dealers were accepting crypto. There were, you know, booths dedicated to NFTs in the main fair. This year, there's sort of a handful of NFT projects, I'd say. Of course, Bitcoin's had a terrible year, as have NFTs. The NFT market has dropped by 97% from their peak in early 2022. So that's obviously going to have a knock-on effect. Last year, the mayor of Miami was sort of really hyping the city as the next sort of crypto center, you know, it's enticing people from Silicon Valley, from the West Coast. Unfortunately, one of the, the big companies which was due to relocate its headquarters from Chicago to Miami was FTX, and they filed for bankruptcy on the 10th of November. So, you know, this is just very recently we're seeing this sort of collapse of the market you know how that will play out long term is still uncertain but there's obviously been a huge reality check there and probably rightly so i mean there was so much froth in that market whether you know nfts will continue to be part of the art world it's unlikely in any large way but um you know again the jury's out but this year certainly miami is not it's not a marriage made for art and crypto this year in miami So let's talk about some of the main talking points at the fair. One work that is drawing a lot of attention is an ATM installation by Mischief, the art collective, which is on show with Periton Gallery. And it basically invites fairgoers to put their credit card into this ATM machine and it takes the current balance of that bank account and displays it alongside a photograph of the user and creates a leaderboard of the wealthiest users, which is so meta art world, it's kind of weirdly obscene. It's weirdly obscene and it's also drawing the crowd. I mean, people love it. I mean, I can't help but think it's a bit of a, can I say this, dick-wanging competition. I mean, it's interesting actually to note no women appear in this 
ranking until number 25. Whether that says more about the bank balances of men and women or whether there is more likely men who are inclined to have that kind of information made public, you know, I'll let you judge for yourself. But yes, I mean, Peritan, obviously, the dealer who bought us the infamous banana. So there's another gimmick here at the fair, but again, it's doing well. Apparently, it is sold to a local collector for $75,000. And this collector, I, I don't know who they are, but they say they're going to put it on show in a public space in Miami. So, you know, there's obviously this going to continue this gimmick. At present, the highest bank balance entry is a guy with... million in the bank. We don't know who he is, but our reporters are on the case. We're hopefully, you know, we'll have an update on that. But um, it's just a bit of fun. But at the same time, you know, it really sort of drills home, I suppose, the sort of financialization of the art market, this sort of very real connection with with money and transaction. Yeah, and here we are talking about economic crises. And, you know, you can go and find the richest person at the fair, track them down. (laughs) Very intriguing. But still, there's more controversy outside the fair. There's a beachside pop-up exhibition that's showing these very raunchy photographs of none other than Madonna. It's celebrating the relaunch of her book Sex, which came out in 1992. So this is 30 years on. It's being reproduced by Saint Laurent Ribois. So what can you tell me about this exhibition and why they're putting this on now here in Miami? Well, first of all, can I just say the pop-up structure is giving strong Prada Marfa vibes. I mean, it's a really beautiful structure. It's this chic wooden and metal gallery that they've constructed on the beach, sort of at the back of some of the big hotels here, sort of almost behind the Shore Club. It was heavily patrolled before it opened on Tuesday, um, though there was no cordon around it, but they were obviously desperate to not let anyone have a sneak peek of these very raunchy, racy images of Madonna, you know, full frontal nudes, more or less. Inside, I have to say I haven't seen it, but I've seen the pictures. Inside, you did try to see it. I did. (laughs) My colleague Gareth Harris and I did try to have a look, and we were told very strongly that we should not be, you know, within the vicinity of this structure, even though it was on the public beach. So yeah, that was quite a fun sort of entrance to the week, almost being threatened with arrest. But um, (laughs) inside, I hear a large-scale prints from this raunchy shoot which Madonna did 30 years ago. And the book is on sale. It's priced at $2,200 each. And it's an edition of 800 So, you know, it's almost like a work of art. What else have you seen at the fair that's kind of caught your attention? Well, I spent quite a lot of time on the booth of the New York dealer, Jack Shaman, this morning. He's got an incredible booth. He's long championed art by black artists. And he has a very strong presentation, a mixture of very new works and some older works. For instance, he represents the estate of Gordon Parks. On the booth, he has got a beautiful new painting by Lynette Yedon-Boake, painted this year, painted, in fact, I think in the last few weeks, possibly. I mean, I think Jack told me that he was only alerted to the fact that he was going to have this painting on his booth about three weeks ago. So Lynette, of course, has just had her retrospective reopen at Tate Britain. It opened in, I think, December 2020, was open for just two weeks and was cruelly cut short by another lockdown in the UK. So that's just reopened. Included within that presentation, I think, are some new paintings. So she's updated her retrospective, which has also provided this work to Jack Shaman for the fair. They wouldn't give me an exact price, but I think these works go for a few million. More than a million, less than five million. I'd say about 2.83 million. And it was sold about ten times over yesterday on the booth. I think they're a long waiting list for her work. And I think the gallery is now just looking at all the offers and working out where best to place the work, which institution perhaps. There are strong contracts on such sales so that any buyer is not allowed to resell the work at auction within a given time. So they're not going to 
see these kinds of work flipped in a short space of time and any attempt to resell must go first to the gallery. So the gallery has first refusal on resale. So they're just looking at the paperwork now, but it's a stunning work on his booth. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Art Basel in Miami Beach continues until Saturday, 3rd of December. And you can read all our reports from the fair at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android or iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. Coming up, cuts to art organisations in England and Ukrainian modernism in Madrid. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. In Venice, a glass wall has been built around St Mark's Basilica, the city's most famous monument. The glass barrier will prevent water from invading the thousand-year-old church, as it has done hundreds of times over recent decades. It first proved its worth on the 7th of November, when the water level in Venice rose to 95 centimetres above the zero measuring point established in 1897. The glass is necessary because the low-lying area around the basilica floods at 85 centimetres, but the authorities have decided to raise the hinge barriers between the Adriatic and the Venice Lagoon only when the level reaches 120 centimetres. That's to allow the freest possible access of cargo ships to the commercial port in Venice. Critics argue that the Venetian authorities are again placing economic interests before conservation concerns. The National Gallery in London's controversial £35 million proposal to radically remodel the entrance of its Sainsbury Wing extension was granted full planning permission by Westminster City Councillors this week. The decision allows the museum's leadership to forge ahead with the architect Annabel Seldorf's adjustments to the Sainsbury Wing extension, which was designed in 1991 by the postmodern architects Denise Scott Brown and Robert Venturi. The new plans have been described by critics as resembling an airport lounge. The revamp is part of the gallery's celebrations for its bicentenary in 2024 and you can hear more about the Sainsbury Wing Row on our podcast from the 4th of November. And finally, two significant artists died this week. Ashley Bickerton, a breakout star of New York's neo-geo art scene of the 1980s, best known for his inventive, often bitingly satirical mixed-media practice, died on Wednesday at his home in Bali in Indonesia. He was 63. And Tom Phillips, the great British polymath, best known for his remarkable lifelong project, A Humament, died in London on Monday. He was 85. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Discover the groundbreaking design of the 20th and 21st centuries in Christie's design sales in New York. Leading the series is Sculpting Paradise, the collection of Marie Lalanne on the 7th of December, which presents the imaginative work of the paradigm-shifting French sculptors Claude and Francois Xavier Lalanne. The sales continue on the 9th of December with designs by Alberto and Diego Giacometti, the iconic creations of Tiffany and Christie's seasonal design sale. View the works in person beginning 2nd of December at Christie's Rockefeller Centre Galleries and in the meantime explore the sales on christies.com Welcome back 
Now, last month, Arts Council England, or ACE, announced controversial plans for £446 million of grants to arts organisations. So far, the public outcry has focused on the performing arts and particularly on English National Opera, which lost its subsidy unless it leaves London and moves to Manchester. But what do the announcements mean for the visual arts? The latest round of grants covers three financial years, from April 2023 to April 2026, and totals £446 million a year, up on the £407 million handed out from 2018 to 2019, but, with inflation, a reduction in real terms. But the protests relate to the shifting of resources, particularly from London to other parts of the country. Of the 990 recipient organisations, 276, or 28%, have been allocated grants for the first time, but that's led to a damaging impact on established arts institutions that have had their grants cut. 127 organisations have been dropped entirely, which will probably force some of them to close. The most fundamental change is the financial shift from London to other cities and regions, part of the UK government's so-called levelling up agenda. The UK's former culture secretary, Nadine Dorries, issued explicit orders to the ACE chair and former Tate director, Nicola Sirota, on the 18th of February, saying she was, quote, instructing the Arts Council to significantly increase investment outside of London. This language arguably breaks the government's long-standing commitments to an arm's-length arrangement over arts funding. But Sorota insists that allocations for particular recipients were ace decisions and that the government has always decided in broad terms how much money should be put into the arts and how it should be spent. There was never a golden age with no government interference, he says. But the announcements mean that several prominent visual arts organisations in London are facing drastic cuts to their funding. The Institute of Contemporary Arts grant has fallen from £862,000 to £678,000. The Serpentine Galleries from £1.2 million to 708,000 and the Camden Arts Centre's allocation from 920,000 to 600,000. I asked Jenny Lomax, an independent curator and former director of the Camden Arts Centre, what the cuts would mean for the gallery. Jenny, you ran the Camden Arts Centre for 27 years, 27, I think. 27, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about Arts Council funding and how crucial it was to that Well, for Camden, it was incredibly crucial because when I went to Camden from the Whitechapel in 1990, it didn't have any funding other than local authority, Camden Council funding. And uh, 1990, as some people will know, was time of severe financial crisis. And Camden Council had cut its grant by half so when I arrived, our total income was £117,000. <laughs> so it was quite urgent to be able to get other sources of funding. And at that time, it was difficult to make the leap to being Arts Council funded. So I turned to Greater London Arts or London Arts Board or whatever <laughs> iteration it was then, which was the funding body for Greater London and started off from a very small grant to becoming quite a substantial grant, basically through having developed programmes that, you know, were meaningful to London. And then when the regional arts boards were devolved, we became a arts council 
client. But Camden had always been slightly poor relation, in fact, because it had never been part of the main family. So it was always a struggle. And I felt very proud and pleased that before I left that we had got a series of uplifts from the Arts Council over the years, particularly because I think the Arts Council recognised that Camden, while it wasn't a place where people are flocking for blockbusters, it was a place that encouraged people to make art and also nurtured artists at times when they were not so well known. So it paved the way and opened doors both for audiences and for artists, really. And also it reached out to local communities. I mean, it's in a strange position in a way, Camden, isn't it? Because it's called the Camden Arts Centre. It's at the bottom of Hampstead, effectively. Yeah, it's right on the edge of Brent and Barnet and, you know. So it's in between very wealthy borough and then some really quite deprived boroughs, boroughs that have low-income families and so on. Absolutely. And boroughs like Brent, where there's very little visual arts provision. And even other parts of Camden have pockets of severe deprivation, And people get doubly penalised, really, because they're seen to being in a rich borough. But the community aspect of Camden and having a sense of place and what was very important to me, because I set up the education programme at the Whitechapel before I went to Camden. And it was the reason that I went there, really, because it had studios, it had a ceramic studio, it had a pottery, it had things that made it very much a place that you could make art as well as look at it. You know, I wasn't a curator as such. My aim was about opening doors to people with art, not just doing international shows. The current government's been in place since 2010. You therefore had seven years of Mm. funding applications during that time. Yeah. To what extent was there a sort of real terms cut or an actual cut to your funding in that period? In the beginning, the 10 years, it wasn't so obvious. Influential people in the arts had been listened to. And I think there were people, particularly in theatre, Cameron McIntosh, people like that, but also Nick, Sorota. I think they had direct conversations with government about really the arts economy and making the argument that the arts brought in money and they were a real asset to the country, not just London, but countrywide. And I think that argument was taken on board. It was then gradually, as things changed, I suppose people in government weren't minded to think about the arts. I mean, we know that from education and arts coming from the curriculum and so on. So, And then things became at a standstill. But this, I think, was the first time where uh, there was what is, in effect, a huge cut, even though it's redistribution, but it's a huge cut. Absolutely, yeah. Let's talk about government and their role in liaising with Mm. us organisations, because did you have any actual direct contact with anyone at the Department for Culture, Media and Sport? No, no. I mean, certainly in all my many years of working in the arts and knowing the Arts Council and being on Arts Council panels and so on. This is the first time that 
that loss of an arm's length principle between the Arts Council and government has really shown its ugly face. The arm's length principle is effectively that government provides money for arts organisations but does not interfere with the content of the programming. Well, it provided money to organisations like the Arts Council and the regional arts boards to be able to distribute in the ways that they saw fit and that were relevant to what was going on in their areas and I suppose, having confidence that those people understood the priorities in the arts at the time. Did the Arts Council or the regional authorities ever send you instructions about how they wanted you to spend the money that you were granted? They didn't used to, but probably over the last 10 years, they have become more, not so much directing in giving instructions, but influencing the direction that people are going in, in terms of their criterias, targets, the box ticking. That never used to happen before, but now it's very much channeled through a filter that is a directive, although it's not telling people that you should do this, but it's very obvious that if you don't score under those criterias or priorities of the Arts Council, then your funding will be at risk. Can you give me a sense of what a 30% cut to your budget from a funding organisation like Arts Council would have done to your programme, would have done to the organisation? Well, for Cameron, and in fact, it's a 36% mm. cut. It's huge, actually. An organisation like Camden is really quite small. It's not like peer or, you know, but it's a medium-sized organisation. But there's no excess in it. It doesn't have a lot of fat. It's quite a lean organisation. And we always kept it deliberately that way because as far as I was concerned, you know, once you spent more than half of your budget on things that were not programmed, then you're doing something wrong. So too many staff, too many this and that, too many parties. (laughs) (laughs) That wouldn't be right. You had to be spending at least 50%. And for an organisation like Camden, which has always been slightly difficult for general public and supporters in the We never really showed artists who were out there making headlines. We either showed artists at very early stages of their career, people like Mike Nelson, Martin Creed, Veronica Ryan, people like that, Mm. when they were much younger. Or people like Kerry James Marshall, Cara Walker... Marlene Dumas, on and on and on, who hadn't been shown in this country but were known elsewhere. So Camden had that real role, but what it meant was that it was harder to get money from other sources like patrons and so on, even though we have a nice group of patrons. They're not of the huge museum kind of giving. It's not like the US kind of trustee model, no, which is no, you know, absolutely not. very wealthy philanthropists absolutely in, not. on the board and yeah. giving the institution And money. also, I think for me and for the organisation, it was important that we maintained an independence because 
that sort of creating a pipeline of talent and also having artists working with young people and communities and so on. It was crucial to Camden's identity and if we became more like other organisations that perhaps were more wealthy, we would lose that. So to recoup 30%, which is probably almost like 20% of the overall budget, Mm. is actually a lot for Camden because it does have to work hard for all the money that it earns and sadly I think it will mean a loss of some of that adventurousness and innovation in order to attract that money. One of the things that's striking about what Martin Clark, the current director of Camden said is that he was told in the sort of application process Mm. that everything that they were doing was exactly what was required. Well absolutely this is one of the things not just for Camden but for all the organisations that have been cut everybody works so hard anybody that hasn't seen what an arts council application means it's reams and reams and reams it's weeks months of work I used to have steam coming out of my ears (laughs) and I would swear the whole time Martin's much calmer than me but it's a lot of work Camden has always excelled in areas of governance in its program in meeting things and I think had all the organizations known that when it came to it this time, they were not going to be judged on merit, but judged on postcode or whatever, then I think they probably wouldn't have bothered doing the application. I mean, that to me, it's criminal really to have put people through all that work and for them not to be judged. You know, they have all these boxes to tick and Camden scored very highly on all of them, as it should have done. And it was completely ignored when it came to it. So, And I'm sure that that was the case for other places like Milton Keynes and so on, who all give excellent value for public money. Yeah. One of the things that's striking is that there are very, very significant protests going on. There's a lot of expression of dismay coming mm. from for instance the opera community mm. there, are, there you know mm. literally you have english national opera singing outside venues yeah. the visual arts strike me as being not organized in the same way there mm. doesn't seem to be a great expression publicly at least of anger about this why are we not hearing more from the visual arts communities there seems to be a certain reserved response Yeah, it's an interesting question and one that isn't new, actually. I mean, in all the times when arts have been threatened, the loudest voices have been opera, theatre, music. I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I mean, there have been attempts over the years to bring the visual arts community together, but because we're not used to working in troops or whatever, <laughs> nor can many of us sing, there doesn't seem to be that outlet for anger in the same way. And also, the visual arts don't get the column inches in national newspapers in the way that arts that have more 
prominent people who are celebrities that are household names. Therefore, they confine themselves in the news pages, whereas the visual arts, you know, other than Anthony, Tracy, Anish, <laughs> people don't really know. So there isn't the inclination in the press really to put forward the case for the arts either. I do know that like the London Visual Arts Group got together for a, a meeting just after the cuts, but I don't know what the outcome of that is. And then there's the Tate Plus organisation that, I mean, it's not every arts organisation, but it's quite a lot. I don't know if they will be doing something, but there isn't a strong or powerful voice at all. And also I think, you know, the visual arts and certainly the publicly funded visual arts, they're about being a bit more subversive. You know, they're not out there to always crowd please or hmm. be out there. So it, it doesn't come naturally to, I suppose, be out on the street shouting. I guess one of the key things is who should the arts be protesting against? Because one of the things that it seems to me there is an element of confusion about is to what extent the government is to blame and to what extent mm. the Arts Council is to mm. blame. What's your view on that? Well, initially, I think it's the government. I mean, to have a levelling up agenda, fantastic. To fund more arts organisations outside of London, brilliant. To be able to bring on board some younger grassroots organisations into the Arts Council. Fantastic. All great. But to do it without putting extra money and just saying we've just got to take it all from London, organisations, I think is shameful and very poor thinking in terms of the way arts are nurtured and grow this idea that somehow London can fend for itself when we know that the capital is an important part of that whole arts ecology and where artists move in and out, which isn't to put down places outside of London which are incredibly important and we know that new centres of artistic excellence are thriving all over the country. But they shouldn't have said to do this you have to take it away. Hmm. Then I think in terms of the Arts Council, I would like to think that they could have made more protest and more put forward some different strategies. Within the London area panel of the Arts Council, there are no visual arts specialists on that panel. And that to me, is one of the reasons why Camden was an easy target, because they didn't understand what Camden was or even where it was. I think they just thought it was in Camden Town and whatever. And I think that that's a real issue. And also the fact that the government appoint people to those panels or a number of people to those panels which in the olden days didn't happen and I know for a fact that 
in the recent past, in the last funding round, we had very passionate people like Sally Talent and so on who were on that board who could argue for places like Camden and make a case for the value that wasn't accrued visitor number versus amount of grants. So, you know, I think that there is an issue there in terms of the visual arts that really is an important one and one that needs to be addressed. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. You can read more about this story on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This week, the Thyssen-Borna Mesa Museum in Madrid opened the exhibition In the Eye of the Storm, Modernism in Ukraine, 1900 to 1930s, featuring dozens of works that have been shipped from Kiev to the Spanish capital. Among them is Oleksandr Bohomazov's Sharpening the Saws, and I spoke to Katya Denisova, the co-curator of the show, about the painting. Katya, to begin with, let's get some background on Alexander Bogomazov. Alexander Bogomazov, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting artists who worked in Ukraine in the first half of the 20th century. He was born in northeastern Ukraine and kind of he grew up around that area before moving uh, to Kiev, where he studied, attended school and he finished school in Kiev. But he also attended a Kiev Art School and he was a graduate of the Kiev Art School. And after that, he, he spent most of his life in Kiev, actually. He never traveled outside the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. He did do some travels around kind of the area. He went to, to Finland, he went to Moscow, he also spent a couple of years teaching in Armenia. So it's not like he was kind of stuck in Kiev for all his life and haven't seen anything. That's not the case. But it's very interesting when you see his works, how much of Western not influences, but like he was very much aware of what was happening in the West in terms of the development of art. He was um, influenced as a younger artist by Impressionism and kind of he had elements of art new in his works and then gradually he started to incorporate more more radical styles and movements and he was influenced by cubism and uh, later futurism and it's actually he's considered to be the only truly like Ukrainian futurist artist and and so his works from the 1910s early 1920s they're kind of characterized by a combination of cubism and futurism so it's like the, the style of cubo futurism but they are much more kind of futuristic than cubistic in their visual language. But he never traveled to Italy. He never met Italian futurists, but kind of nonetheless, he kind of was aware of all the developments that were happening in the art world. And kind of he worked through all of the new trends and kind of interpreted them in his own unique way. How typical of Kiev avant-garde circles was he in that sense? You know, and was there much absorption of the key developments of modern art elsewhere? Absolutely. And many of the artists from Kiev or from other uh, parts of Ukraine, they, they actually did travel to the West and they studied in the academies in, in Paris and Munich and Krakow. And one of Bogomazov's close, kind of, I'm not sure they were friends, friends, but they worked together quite a lot and they, they mounted exhibitions together was Alexandra Exter, who was also, she grew up in, in Kiev and she studied at the Kiev Art School and they obviously kind of worked together quite a lot. And she is someone who spent a lot of time in Paris 
Paris and she befriended Leger and Picasso and, and Braque and kind of, and then she was also quite close to Italian futurists. So she was kind of an art emissary who was bringing all of these developments back to Kiev and to the Russian Empire more broadly. But yes, definitely kind of artists working in Kiev in the early 20th century, they were very well aware of what was happening in the West. And also many of them, including Bogomazov, they did go to Moscow and they saw the collections of Morozov and Shukin that were kind of obviously had mm. the best of what was happening in Western or Parisian art at the time. So they were not isolated in that sense. They kind of very much were exposed to Western art developments and then they kind of worked through them in their art practice. And Bogomazov was also a theorist as well as a painter, right? And we yes. see this sort of writ large in the works that he creates. Is that right? Yes, he was quite a prolific art theorist and he had several treaties uh, on art, on various aspects of art. And you can see in his artworks how he was then kind of working through his own theories in in his paintings. And as I said, his earlier works are kind of a bit more fluid and they kind of dynamic and they incorporate elements of cubism and uh, futurism. And then his later works are kind of the, the visual vocabulary changes and at that time, so in the sort of mid to late 1920s, he was working on color theories, and that's when color becomes such a, a prominent feature of his art. And uh, the painting that I wanted to talk about today, Chapin with the Source, I mean, it's a feast of color. Like, color is the main protagonist, and you can see how he was applying his own, like, whatever he was thinking through and theorizing and working out how color works, he then actually applied it in his practice. It's really striking when you look at the work that the saws play this extraordinarily important role. Obviously, they're the subject to the work. There are men sharpening saws. But Mm -hmm. in terms of the color, it's the saws that play this incredibly dynamic role in, in this painting, right? Absolutely. And what is interesting about this painting, it was actually, he envisioned it as a triptych. So there were supposed to be three canvases. He managed to complete two of them before he very sadly passed away. He had tuberculosis. So he died in 1930 before he managed to complete the the final one. But we have many of his uh, preparatory sketches for this final canvas as well. And so it was kind of supposed to be three canvases. Uh, he completed the central one and the final one, and the final one is sharpening the sews. And you can see how kind of color changes through this triptych as the sawyers, they progress with their workday. So they start in the morning when they just roll the logs and the color palette is a bit like toned down. It's sort of like morning light. And then kind of the middle canvas is kind of they're actually at work and kind of they're kind of cutting the logs. The color becomes much more saturated. And then you move to the, the set, the one that we have in the exhibition, Chapening the Source. And it's still very bright, the color but I think it's kind of toning down it's becoming this more kind of evening light and kind of I think he was thinking that like the evening sun will be reflected in the source and kind of that's why the source are kind of such striking color it's a visual feast that uh, painting and to think about how it would have looked if he completed the whole thing is just a tremendous undertaking Absolutely. I'm interested in exploring the sort of different influences of the work because you talked about futurism earlier on. And and I guess to me, the most sort of clear nod to futurism seems to me to be in the sky, that sort of arc within the clouds. It's a kind of dynamic arc that's very common in that kind of futurist language. But one of the interesting things is that he's 
also committed, it seems, to a kind of depiction of the human figure, which is almost naturalistic. Can you say something about that? Yes, I think what we need to remember is that the political situation changes in Ukraine at the time. So uh, this work was uh, created in 1927. So at that point, Ukraine was already part of Soviet Union. And Bogomaza was teaching at the Kiev um, Art Institute um, at the time. And that's kind of on the basis of the Art Institute, he was kind of developing some of his color theories. But in the sort of late 1920s, early 1930s, the political situation changes and the state becomes much more involved in what's happening in in culture and in the arts. And obviously the proletarian theme becomes so, so prominent. So artists kind of, they they need to cater to the new audience, to kind of the, the Soviet, the proletarian audience. And that's why I think many artists who are working with like, Futurism, Cubism, and more radical art movements earlier on. At this kind of in the late twenties, early thirties, they come back to more naturalist and realistic painting. And kind of, I don't want to say that kind of there is. I mean, socialist realism was only introduced in nineteen thirty-two, but I think they are kind of gradually moving to to this visual language that a bit more realistic, more accessible to to the broader audiences, and kind of treats the themes that were of interest and of importance at the times, the workers, the the peasants, the proletarian, kind of the industrialization and kind of all the rest of it. So I think this painting is interesting because I think there is a bit of a like hybridity in the style. So Bogomazov is still kind of very much a modernist painter and kind of he is using some of the elements uh, kind of his previous practice as you said like in the sky you can see kind of these elements that are very much futuristic and obviously the color is not a realistic color and by a stretch so but at the same time they're trying to integrate elements of, of new visual like what what is important for the audiences at the time and kind of there was also like a more pragmatic I think thinking to it is that he obviously wanted to exhibit his works in state uh, exhibitions and in order to be able to do that the subject seem had to be relevant and it had to adhere to certain kind of norms and kind of expectations that were put on artists um, at the time. So I think it's like, it's an interesting moment in the development of art in uh, Soviet Ukraine and uh, when artists were still able to experiment, but at the same time, they also had to kind of think more about their audience and the audience changed because it was Soviet period. Can you say something about the, you talked about audience there, can you say something about the reception of the work at the time and its significance now to Ukraine? Because of course it's in the National Collection, it's in the National Museum. So has it acquired a kind of national importance? Yeah, so it was very well received. So he exhibited both the sharpening of the souls and another canvas that he completed from the scriptic in the state exhibitions and it was extremely well received. And the central canvas, so it is at work, it was actually taken to the Venice Biennale in 1930, and it was exhibited as part of the Ukrainian section within the Soviet pavilion at the Biennale. And it was extremely well received at the Biennale to the point that they then toured this work to Switzerland and then to Japan. So it left Ukraine in 1930, and I think it kind of was touring the world for a couple of years. And then when it returned to Ukraine, that was like in early 30s, mid 30s, the political situation was kind of becoming much more difficult for artists because uh, kind of Stalin was making his grip and everything becoming centralized and socialist realism was introduced as the only official and possible style for artists to work with. So 
the kind of works that Bogomazov was creating were no longer in demand and they were considered to be too formalist and not accessible enough for the proletarian viewer. And so these works, they were taken to something that was called Spitzfond, kind of a special secret warehouse at the National Art Museum of Ukraine, where all the works that were considered to be formalist or works that were created by artists who were accused of being a nationalist bourgeoisie or enemies of the state or whatnot, kind of everyone who didn't fit the new criteria that was created for art and artists, all of those works ended up in this pets fund. And so they were hidden away for many years and many of these artworks were supposed to be destroyed. It's a miracle that they survived. And it wasn't until after Stalin's death that some of these artworks come up and started to come back to the museum walls. But in earnest, the, the process of recovering this kind of lost treasures didn't happen until the 90s when Ukraine became independent. And so these two canvases, sharpening the source and sawyers at work, when they were recovered, they were in most horrible condition. Like, And the restoration that was done on them was amazing. Like the restorers at the museum, they did such a tremendous job. But as I say, it's a miracle that actually this work survived. And obviously now Ukraine, kind of in the last 30 years, we were kind of going through the process of recovering our own heritage that was denied us, kind of and hidden away from us for such a long time. And Bogomazov is key in this process. And kind of these artworks are key because they they represent a very important period in the development of Ukrainian culture that was suppressed after kind of in the, from the late 30s. And now we have the possibility and, and the right to learn about this art again. So it's it's extremely important for Ukrainian culture. And for us in this moment in time, artworks such as this, they acquire additional significance. Absolutely. And of course, that additional significance is amplified by this exhibition in Madrid. Yes. And it sounds like an extraordinary effort to move the works from Ukraine to yes. Madrid to make the exhibition happen. Tell me about that. Yes, I mean, the whole project has been a roller coaster journey because we organized a massive exhibition. So, this is probably one of the biggest exhibitions of Ukrainian modern art outside Ukraine ever. And we organized the whole thing in a space of five, six months. So, museums like the Tissin Bornemisa Museum, where we've opened the exhibition, they are not used to working with such timelines and timeframes or exhibitions of such a scale. So, we're extremely immensely grateful that the museum kind of came on board and they dedicated a lot of resources to make this happen. But so it was kind of a very uh, complicated uh, project logistically because we were sure that we wanted to take artworks from Ukrainian museums. And as we discussed at the beginning, like, there was a dual objective first to make sure that we take the works out of Ukraine and take them to safety. And secondly, we actually just wanted to share this artistic period of Ukraine with broader audiences. Obviously, the museums in Ukraine, they, they were excited to to participate in this project, but there was also a risk of shipping the artworks out of Ukraine. Ukraine is a huge country, so like it takes a lot yeah. of time to, to take something out of Kiev. And all the works that we have from Ukrainian Museum, and it's the National Art Museum of Ukraine and the Museum of Theatre, Cinema and Music Arts of Ukraine, both of them are in Kiev, and their collections were not evacuated. So obviously everything was taken off the walls and kind of into storage and everything was like wrapped in protective 
Yeah, but essentially the artworks were in Kiev. So there was a calculated risk of like whether it's safer for them to stay there or be shipped and kind of endure this journey through the country at war. But we decided that it's better to take them out while we have the opportunity to do so because we know what happens when Russians get hold of museum collections on occupied territories, nothing remains. And there is only one proper art shipping company that still operates in Ukraine, Kunstrans. So we were working with them, but then no insurer would insure artworks as they are traveling through Ukraine because it's kind of it's just impossible to assess the risks. But we're super grateful to you because we, we were working under sort of the patronage with the assistance of the President Zelensky's office and the Ministry of Culture of Ukraine, and they provided military convoy to kind of while the vans with the artworks were moving through Ukraine, at least kind of there was a military convoy accompanying them. But what we didn't expect is that the day when the artworks would actually start moving out of Kiev to the border would be the day of the biggest missile attack on Ukraine. So it was the 15th of November. And luckily, the, the vans left Kiev two hours before the strike began. But that day, I think all of us who were working on this project, we, we became gray because it, it was the day when 100 missiles were uh, fired and the Russians are targeting the infrastructure. So they're not targeting moving objects. But at the same time, you just cannot predict what will happen. Like they, they can land anywhere. So luckily they got through Ukraine without any issues. But then when they got to the Polish border, they got stuck on the Polish border because very sadly that was the day when a stray missile hit Poland. And so obviously the Polish border was closed. And it was a diplomatic feast to get the trucks moving again and through the customs as, uh, as quickly as possible. The ambassador of Ukraine in Spain got in touch with his counterpart in Poland. So kind of everyone was working around the clock to make sure that the works are just on the way as quickly as possible, which did happen eventually. And so the vans left Kiev on Tuesday. They arrived in Spain on Sunday. And when they came here, I think all of us cried because we just could not believe that we actually managed to do this um so yeah so it was a very dramatic and very uh, emotional journey for all of us i'm sure it was katya thank you so much for telling us about this work thank you for having me thank you In the eye of the storm, modernism in Ukraine 1900 to 1930s is at the Tyson Bornemisa Museum in Madrid until the 30th of April 2023. And that's all for this week. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Amy and Annie, Jenny and Katia. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.